Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning comes from Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh your God gives you. As we've worked our way through the Ten Commandments for the last couple weeks, today we arrive at the Fifth Commandment, honor your father and mother, and included in this commandment is a promise that your days may be prolonged in the land which God is giving you. In Ephesians, Paul adds to the beginning of this command, children, obey your parents, for this is right, and then tells them to honor their parents. In this, we see that obedience is the most effective form of honor. Obedience is the way that we can practically honor our parents. This follows the command of Christ as he tells his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount that everyone who hears these words of mine and does them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Hearing the words is not enough, but to truly honor our parents or any that we are in submission to, obedience to the words is necessary. We need to be a people who listen and then do. We need to hear and then obey by working out what God has commanded us to do. As the Westminster Shore Catechism puts it, the fifth commandment requires us to preserve the honor and perform the duties that belong to everyone in their several places and relations to us as superiors, inferiors, or equals. As speaking of the promise that is part of this commandment, the Catechism says that a promise of long life and prosperity, as far as it shall serve for God's glory and our own good, is given to all such as keep this commandment. In summary, we seek to honor all those that God has placed over us in his sovereign will, serving them as parents or superiors with faithful obedience, looking to God and his promises as our ultimate reward. Let us confess now where we have kicked against those authorities that God has placed over us, seeking his forgiveness for pursuing our own will and not submitting to his perfect providence. Today we turn our attention back to the chronological history of the first church, the, the first years of the Christian church, that is, as recorded in the book of Acts. When we paused our time in the book of Acts, when we left off in October, about four months ago, we had almost made it to the end of Paul's second of three missionary journeys. Today, we're going to pick up where we left off and, Lord willing, complete this great book in the spring. So in the interest of setting the context for the text we're about to look to today, We'll first review what Luke recorded for us in the first 17-plus chapters of the book of Acts. That sounds like a a daunting task. Uh, It'll be okay. So in Acts chapter 1, Luke picks up where he left off in the Gospel of Luke. That is, in his inspired chronological record of Jesus Christ. The conception, birth, perfect life, miracles, crucifixion, death, resurrection, plus 40 days on earth. He begins Acts 1 with the ascension of Christ into heaven, which we place at about 30 AD. 
In the remainder of Acts 1 through Acts 8, the first eight chapters of Acts, Luke covers two very eventful years, the first two years of the church, including the ascension, Matthias chosen by Lot, replacing Judas, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost with a miraculous showing of tongues. Peter then heals and preaches. Peter and John are arrested and then released. Believers are willing to share all, again, generously, not as a result of socialism. The deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, the apostles preach and heal. Stephen's speech, his stoning and his death, Saul persecuting the church, Philip in Samaria, Simon the sorcerer, and Philip and the Ethiopian. A lot of ground is covered in some measure of detail in these first two years of the church. Next, in the, in the next four chapters, so chapters 9 through 12 of Acts, what do we see? This record spans 15 years, 15 years where from, from roughly 31 to about 46 AD, including Saul's conversion, very important, Peter preaching to the Gentiles, Barnabas sent to Antioch, Peter led from prison by the angel, and the death of Herod Agrippa. So lots of big milestone things happening there, but over a longer period of time. It's at this point that Paul launches into his formal missionary journey, his very first. And his first missionary journey is covered in Acts 13 to 15. We follow him across five cities in three years. So he spent under a year on average in each of these cities from Pisidian Antioch to Iconium to Lystra to Derbe to Syrian Antioch, culminating in the very important record of the council in Jerusalem. So that's Acts 15. That's a a milestone in the book of Acts. And then Luke immediately from his first missionary journey transitions to his second missionary journey with key moments captured in Acts 15 through 18, where we find ourselves today. And in this four-year journey, so his first, his first missionary journey was about uh, three years, his second was about four years, Paul plants churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Corinth. So today we pick up Luke's history of the early church in Acts 18, just as Paul is completing his second missionary journey, about 22 years after the ascension of Christ. So think about what was going on 20-some years ago. That was about the turn of our century, wasn't it? So it's that kind of a distance that we find ourselves now with Paul in the, in the book, of, book of Acts, uh, just finishing his second missionary journey. And then from here to the end of the book of Acts, will cover a span of eight years. So it will become more dense uh, in, in terms of the content that we cover. And, uh, and 30 years, culminating at 30 years after the ascension. So today we pick up in Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 28. This will be the most brief passage that we'll, we'll cover as a, as a transition back into Acts. So before we read the text for today, bow your heads and hearts in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, on this Lord's Day, we pray that your word would not return void, that as Isaiah wrote, but rather that we would be both challenged and encouraged by your inspired word. 
In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts 18, verses 18 through 28. After this, Paul stayed many days and then took leave of his brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Senkrikri, he gave cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And that actually is the informal start of his third missionary journey right here in in verses 22 through 23. Then we return back to a, a sort of a vignette back in Ephesus. Back in Ephesus, pick up in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that, that the Christ was Jesus. So this is the passage we'll look at today. Um, Let's start right with verse 18. So after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencrikri, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. So in this opening verse, what we see is that Paul stayed many days longer, but that context is super important because... We know that he was in Corinth. This is where he stayed many days uh, longer. Um, One of the churches that he had found in his second missionary journey. And this was just three years before he wrote the letter that is a part of our New Testament, 1 Corinthians. So here he's founding the church. This is the prequel, if you will, to the letter that we all know and and love, 1 Corinthians, where he, he guided and corrected some significant errors and problems in the church. So he's staying longer in Corinth. And next, we learn that Priscilla and Aquila, uh, that with them, he set sail from Corinth or from Sencrikri. Some translations will call that um, uh, something wrong, but that's actually just a city that's a few miles away from Corinth. That's the seaport that's near Corinth. Um, Paul had been living with Priscilla and Aquila, according to the beginning of Acts 18, for 18 months. And during the week, what was he doing? He was making tents with them. He was a part of commerce. He was was working to support his ministry time there. And then on the weekend, 
on the Sabbath day, he was evangelizing in the temple, um, in, the, in the synagogue, rather, on the, on the Sabbath. And that was for a year and a half. So here he is, he's guests in their home, Priscilla and Aquila, working with them throughout the week, and then ministering on the Sabbath day. Now, Paul announces that he will continue his missionary journey with an 800-mile sail to Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila join him. So this got me thinking a little bit. I was really curious, and in one day in glory, I would love to know the details of what happened here. You know, was it one night at dinner, Paul says, you know, I'm planning to continue my missionary journey. I'm going to go to Syria, um, halfway around the known world. Everybody knows that. Uh, was it Priscilla or was it Aquila that said, hey, let's do this. We're in. We're going with you. Did Paul ask for their help? Here we see this couple, just a few years before, had been uprooted from their home in Italy, getting established and settled in Greece. That's where they are now. And now they're going to pick up and move with Paul. That's a story that I'm, I'm interested to know more of the details of. So still in verse 18, before they set sail, Luke tells us that at Sencricri, Paul said he had his hair cut for he was under a vow. So what I understand this to mean is that Paul had taken a Nazarite vow involving ceremonial purity, and during the, during the period of the vow, he would not cut his hair. And now at the conclusion of the vow, he did, in fact, get a haircut. Now, why did Paul choose to enter into this Nazarite vow? Many commentators have many things to say about them, and what I'm going to say about them is the scripture doesn't tell us, so I'm not going to speculate. As we continue on after Paul's haircut, they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, verse 19, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay longer for a, period, for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So here we see the plan unfold. Priscilla and Aquila stay at the first stop in Paul's journey. That's Ephesus. That's probably 200 miles by sea of an 800-mile journey all the way to Syria that, where Paul was going. And in his first missionary stop to Ephesus, he goes to the synagogue and reasons with the Jews. He plants the seeds of the kingdom there, leaves his friends and co-workers in the faith, and then proceeds on his journey. So he makes a very quick stopover, if you will, and then moves on from there, but leaving Priscilla and Aquila there. Now, I think there are a few points to consider here that if we are reading rapidly through the scriptures, we might not stop and pause and think about this. But it seems to me that what is implied here is that Paul is, was prepared to reason with the Jews. That was a part of his plan. He had prayed. He had studied. He had taken the initiative to evangelize in the synagogue to plant the seeds for Christian ministry there in Ephesus. This passage reminded me, as I was thinking about it, of two other passages that talk about our responsibility with regard to being intentional and praying and studying and taking initiative when it comes to building the kingdom. 
1 Peter 3, 15, uh, um, uh, the second part of which is a favorite memory verse of ours, being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with great gentleness and respect. We are to be ready. We don't just download that knowledge. That's something that we have to pray and prepare to do. And the second one we covered in our scripture reading today, and that is the the, um, Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That is exactly what Paul was fulfilling here. He was starting that process in Ephesus. Second application. Paul made his desire, his intentions known to Priscilla and Aquila and to others there, maybe even those at the synagogue, that he desired to return to them. But reflecting his understanding of God's providential hand on them and on everything in the world, he said, if God wills. So he didn't make a firm, rock-solid commitment to be there. He said, if God wills, I'll be returning. And I think that's an important perspective for us, those of us who are planners, those of us who do say, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. We need to have that operational understanding that God's providential hand may pause us, may divert us. And, and Paul certainly reflected that in his, in his words. Now, as we move on to the second part of this passage, Apollos, Apollos rather, uh, speaks boldly in Ephesus, verses 24 to 28. Uh, tell us a little bit about Apollos. So, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in prayer, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, so picking up, it would seem, where Paul had left off in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of the Lord more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So here we see that Luke takes a detour from the outline of Paul's third missionary journey. Meanwhile, while Paul's in a a ship or a number of ships on the way to Syria, a 600-mile journey, this is what's happening, meanwhile, in Ephesus. And we stay a bit longer to find out what's going on there. Again, Priscilla and Aquila had just arrived. They're the new kids in town. They've just moved. This is their second move in three to four years. Now Luke tells us a bit more about what they're doing there. And the spotlight is on this man, Apollos. In verse 24, Luke introduces us to Apollos and has a lot of positive things to say about him. He's eloquent, he's competent in the scriptures, he's fervent in in spirit. And his reputation is that he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. It sounds like Apollos has the complete package. You know, here he's eloquent, he's competent in the scriptures, he's fervent in spirit, he teaches accurately. He's just checking all the boxes. This sounds like somebody who would be somebody worth listening to, and praise the Lord for that. 
but he had a flat spot. His flat spot was a doctrinal flat spot. And that flat spot was that he was only familiar with the baptism of John. So what I want to do is to spend a few moments reflecting on the baptism of John and what, it's a, what it was about and what, how it is different than Christian baptism. So from a doctrinal perspective, the baptism of John the Baptist was a baptism of repentance. It had that, that notable sign. For years before Christ, the Jews had used baptism in ritual cleansing ceremonies of Gentile proselytes, those who converted to Judaism. So if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew, baptism was in your future. This was a part of the Jewish uh, process. The big change that John the Baptist introduced was that his baptism was applied to Jews themselves, those who were born Jews. It wasn't just the Gentiles who needed that cleansing, who needed that declaration of repentance. John's baptism was very closely linked to his mission to prepare the way, to make the path straight, to announce the coming Messiah, as we learned in Luke 1 during the Advent series a few months ago. The way in which is linked is clear in John's own words. In Matthew 3.11, we read that John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water for repentance, for the purpose of repentance. Next week, as we look at Acts 19, we're going to read the following verse where we continue this story just a little bit. In Acts 19.4, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. So John's baptism had to do with repentance. It was a symbolic representation of the changing of one's mind and going in a new direction. I love that, metanoeo, the change of mind, uh, Greek, that is behind that word, uh, repentance. Quote, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. That's, math, that's the record in Matthew 3, 6. Being baptized by John showed the world that the baptized, baptized person recognized their sin, a desire for spiritual cleansing, and a commitment to follow God's law in anticipation of the Messiah's arrival. It was very comparable to a Jewish purification ceremony, except, as you know, it was applied to Jews themselves. Now let's draw the contrast. Let's briefly look at Christian baptism, the one Jesus instituted in the Great Commission. The reason we went to Matthew 28 is because, because the Great Commission are the last three verses of Matthew chapter 28. And that immediately follows Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So I wanted you to understand that the Great Commission follows that. It wasn't during, uh, it wasn't during Christ's life prior to his death and resurrection. It was post-resurrection Christian baptism was instituted. That's, that's the milestone I'd like you to have in mind. The Westminster Confession does a better job at describing baptism than I ever could. Westminster Confession, chapter 28, the first sentence, baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. 
So Christian baptism has two purposes, to identify an individual as a member of the visible church, and two, to be a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. So the baptism of John and Christian baptism are very different. So now let's go back to the text with that in mind, with that piece of context in mind. Apollos hadn't heard about Christian baptism or hadn't understood that it was very different from John's baptism of repentance. I'd say that was pretty important. I'd say that that was really good for Priscilla and Aquila to talk with him about. So now let's pivot to Priscilla and Aquila for a moment. Priscilla and Aquila were used of God to discreetly, what happened here behind the scenes? Discreetly take Apollos aside and help him resolve this misunderstanding. They might have had a very similar conversation to the one that we just had now. What was the baptism of John? What's Christian baptism? What's it all about? This is something you hadn't heard of before. This is important. This is what, it, this is, what is true and good. So first, let's make sure that we understand there is a difference between Christian baptism and, the, and John's baptism. But then let's dig into a little bit what happened interpersonally here and maybe sociologically between Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. What is, our, what is it about our understanding of life and doctrine that is perfect? I don't know that any of us is without a flat spot, just like Apollos had a flat spot. Might not be the same one, probably isn't. But we each will have a flat spot. Could, you, could God use words of instruction or correction to help you in your Christian life coming from someone else? A brother in Christ, a sister in Christ, a couple in Christ? In this scenario, you are Apollos. You're the one with the flat spot. How will you respond when the proverbial Priscilla and Aquila approach you and say, I think there's a better way. I think you made a wrong turn there. I think you might have said the wrong thing. You might be thinking the wrong thing. You might be doing the wrong thing. What's your knee-jerk reaction to being approached with that kind of a message? Is it some form or flavor of being stiff-necked? Do you vigorously defend your position. What I think is right, and here's why. Or do you argue with them and outright reject their message? Here's, here are the 14 reasons I believe what I believe. Or do you just simply slough it off and dismiss their message? You don't even really consider what they have to say. You don't address it. You don't think about it. You just say... Thanks, have a nice day. Or do you thank them and prayerfully consider what they had to say to you? I would submit to you that we don't want to be among the stiff-necked and that we do want to listen to our brethren when they come to us with, with an offer of help and with an offer of love. So as we conclude this very brief passage, now as Paul Harvey would often say, we learn the rest of the story. What is the rest of the story? In verses 27 and 28, And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When they arrived, 
He greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So what do we learn after Priscilla and Aquila talk to Apollos? Did he drop out of sight? Did he go back to doing something else? No, he went on and continued in ministry and in fact was commended by the brethren as he made a long trip back to Achaia. So now, again, our, our, our first century geography might be challenged a bit. I, I greatly rely on maps of first century um, Mediterranean and, and the Middle East. And here we have a really interesting indication of Apollo's success in ministry after he talks with Priscilla and Aquila. So first, let's fit the puzzle pieces together. Where did Apollos go? Apollos said he wished to cross to Achaia. What large city is in the region of Achaia? Corinth. Think, think where they started from, where Paul started from. Three years after the events of Acts 18, again, I, I mentioned to you that Paul set sail out of, out of Corinth or just outside of Corinth, and now Apollos is going to Corinth Fast forward three years, what do we read at the beginning of 1 Corinthians when Paul writes to the church of Corinth? One often quoted passage from, the, from 1 Corinthians 1 is that for when one says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Apollos. In other words, Paul became aware that Apollos' ministry was so much loved People were so much connected to it that they were, they were forgetting who Paul was. They were saying, I'm with Apollos. So Apollos was such a charismatic and capable defender of the faith and minister of the gospel that someone would even say, I'm on team Apollos, instead of, I'm on team Paul. Paul Apollos was not an apostle, but he was there and he was getting it done. So I'm not saying that this kind of division was right, I'm only calling it out as an indication that Apollos continued in fruitful ministry because he took into account this correction that Priscilla and Aquila had given him, in part. Also exercising the gifts that God had given him. So I want to just recap those two areas of application, or three, that we've talked about so far. We've talked about Paul had a plan. He prayed, he studied, he prepared, he planned, and then he acted on that plan and acknowledged that God who's sovereign may change that plan. Does this text require, does this telling of what Paul did require that we do the same? No, it does not. That's not how we should read this. However, as we reflect on our lives and our responsibilities and our opportunities, we may conclude that a bit of planning is wise, and a bit of planning can make things go better. Maybe you'd get a bit more done. Maybe you'd do a few more important things and fewer unimportant things if you were intentional and if you had a plan. I think we can follow Paul's good example here in being intentional in kingdom ministry and in every part of our life. Secondly, Apollos continued in God-honoring ministry in part because he listened and he learned and he grew. He was reforming. 
He didn't deflect or avoid or pull rank on Priscilla Aquila. Who are you? You don't know me. I, uh, why should I listen to you? He didn't do any of that. He didn't dismiss them. He apparently learned from them and grew as a result. So for us, let's endeavor to be humble and to welcome and anticipate. And those are, those are two important words. Let's welcome when someone comes to us with an offer of help. Let's actually even prepare and anticipate that that's going to happen. That should be happening in a healthy local church. It should be happening among Christian brethren, that others will come to you with an offer of help. Here, the offer of help was doctrinal. I don't know what form that's going to take, but let's welcome and anticipate those opportunities to grow in our faith and to help others grow in their faith. And as much as I'm preaching that to you, I'm preaching that to myself. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Thank you for the inspired history lesson of the book of Acts, left to us by Dr. Luke. Thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul making the most of his days, planning, preparing, and then acting to plant churches. Thank you for the record of a gifted servant of God, Apollos, who continued to grow in the faith. Bless us, Lord, as we endeavor to make most, the most of the life you've given to us. And we sing as a tortoise. plan this way was actually uh, the letter Paul wrote to the Galatians which David actually referred to uh, in chapter 18 and verse 23 where Paul talks about going to Galatia in order to strengthen the disciples there um, but it also helps us understand some of the issues confronting the early church and explains that love fulfills the law but reading from Galatians 5 starting at verse 7 you ran well who hindered you from obeying the truth this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to the liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for, for, for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. I, uh, I love it when Paul writes like this. I think it gives you a little bit of his personality and obviously his frustration he was having with the church in Galatia um, probably in our own current day language you'd probably read something like hey what happened to you guys you know you started off well um, what stranger jumped in your path and led you astray certainly not God who you owe your calling to he didn't lead you astray he, he says that you know not many you tell me that not many of you have fallen away the part about the leaven the corruption that was occurring but uh, as Paul points out, those few are enough to affect the whole bunch of you. 
So it's interesting that he talks about this, but he does bring the, uh, his observations of strife and division in the church home when he says, through love, serve one another. One commentator from a few hundred years ago said that he who loves his neighbor as himself will need no other rule. On the, on the other hand, dissensions will be fatal, not to one party only, but to all who take part in them. The commentator goes on and says, Happy would the church be if all Christians, instead of biting and devouring one another on account of different opinions, would set themselves against sin in themselves and in the places where they live at home. So as Christ commanded us, love your neighbor as yourself, our profession of faith, our relationship to each other should be seen in the way we serve and relate to each other by praying for and with one another, by bearing each other's burdens, sympathizing and communicating with each other and things temporal and spiritual, in forbearing each other, forgiving one another, by admonishing each other when where there's an occasion for it in a meek, tender, and brotherly way, by instructing and building up one another. This is why we come to this table right now, to commune together as the body of Christ assembled here this morning. So at Christ Church of Livingston County, we warmly invite to the Lord's Supper all those who are baptized disciples of Jesus Christ, under the authority of Christ and his body, the church, by eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you acknowledge that you are a sinner without hope, except in the sovereign mercy of God, and that you're entrusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. You also acknowledge to the elders of this congregation that you are in covenant with God, being active in a congregation which is covenantly bound to the triune God through word and sacrament. We believe here at Christ Church of Livingston County that the Lord's Supper is an old part of confession, repentance, renewal, and abiding in Christ. Moreover, it's our conviction that the bread and wine should be received by all baptized covenant members who are able to physically eat and drink the elements, including young children being raised in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. If you have any doubt of your participation, please speak to Tim or I after the service. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.